Well, welcome everyone. It's, I'm always saying, it's, gosh, it's, it's hard to see from up here, but apparently the more I can't see, the better it is for you all. That's what Sam's telling me, so hopefully you can see me well. I'm Debbie Manning, and I'm part of this table team. I'm a pastor here with Matt Moberg. And uh, this has been, I can even take my glasses off of this, um, kind of a crazy week. It's been kind of a crazy week with all that's been going on with the Harvey Weinstein scandal and um, hashtag me too and, uh, and my cubbies. My cubbies didn't make it this year like they did last year. And believe it or not, those two things are, are sort of wound together for me because I spent a lot of time this week thinking about what it means to be a female in our culture, what it means to be a woman in the church and I've looked back on my own life, and I'm looking at my girls' lives and, and some of you that I get to do life with, and I'm amazed that, um, wow, things have changed. Things have not changed. Things have uh, gone this way, wide, but not very deep. And I was thinking back, and I was, I grew up in Chicago, and I was a huge Chicago Cub fan. My dad grew up. Um, cheering for the Cubs, and so he raised my brother and I to be big Cub fans, and every summer, about a half dozen times a year, we'd take that train down to Wrigley Field, and we'd watch the Cubs. I waited a long time for last year to happen, by the way. Um, but in, when I cheered on the Cubs, those were the days, and only, only a few of you might even know some of these people, but it was Ron Santo and, and Fergie Jenkins and, and my all-time favorite, Ernie Banks. I love Ernie Banks, Mr. Cub, he played first base, and I would go out every summer and get his autograph. And I, for about a two-year period, I insisted that all the people on the playground that I played baseball with called me Ernie Banks. <laughs> True story. So I spent my summers through about sixth or seventh grade playing baseball in the backyard with my brother and all his friends. And honest to goodness, besides that Rusty Morgan who lived next door, I was the best person on the team. I'm not kidding you. I was so good. I could throw. I could catch. I was a good pitcher. Um, and so every Saturday, I looked forward to Little League Baseball, because that's what my family did. And this, this little clip, it is an old, you guys, I was telling Matt, this is like 45 years ago. It's an it, it's a old video, and uh, so it's, the quality's not good, but you will get the point. So we would spend our Saturdays there. There's my brother. And the team was called the Bees. And he was, here he is, he's running back and forth between home plate and third base. And he makes it, and you can see the team cheering. And you're going to see him, and he's walking down. There's my dad. My dad's the coach. He's patting him on the back. And wait for it, because you're going to see me. I mean, I just loved our baseball. It was so fun. And there's my dad and my brother. We're out at Patton Elementary School. And all the people are cheering on the sidelines and the team's getting ready to go back out into the field. And you see my dad and there I am. <laughs> and guess what? I was on the sidelines. Because back in 1970, females were not allowed to play baseball. So no matter how good I was, no matter how talented, I was so sure I could add so much to that team. Because of my gender, no matter how much I begged my parents, I was not allowed to play. There was no question to that. And that was really hard. 
And that might seem right now like a really small thing because today, girls can play all sorts of sports. If you're talented, you can play. But as I've been thinking about this past week and all the things that have gone on, I've realized that in my lifetime, I have been and I continue to be limited by my femaleness. It varies from where I am. Oftentimes it's so subtle that unless you're paying attention, you're not even aware of it. But it has to do with how I'm treated. It ha has to do of a sense of powerlessness. And that's ultimately what, the, what this whole Harvey Weinstein thing is about. Yeah, we are sickened and we are angered over the sexual assault and the sexual harassment. But Matt alluded to it last week that this is, this is far more, this is about refuting a toxic culture and violence, of violence that's larger than any particular predator, like Harvey Weinstein. But making one powerful man the scapegoat is missing our opportunity for change. It's missing an opportunity for transformation. Because even this situation is far beyond the sexual harassment and the sexual abuse. It's about powering down on females. It's about gender inequality, power imbalance. And the sad thing is, is that this is not an uncommon occurrence, that there are men who would undermine women and their strength and their intellect and their abilities. This is about not being seen or heard or known because what people will sometimes see is our gender. I'm gonna ask you guys, could I have all the women in the room just stand up? And I promise I'm not gonna do anything super embarrassing or hard, I wouldn't do that because I think people's stories are hard and there's pain. If you are someone who has been, over the years, kept out of a club because of your gender, and you name the club, it could be anything, a job, a promotion, maybe it's a conversation that you were ignored in or your voice wasn't heard, you name it. If you've ever been kept out of the club because of your gender, would you please remain standing? I want to, I have one more question for you, and I want to, I want to define so we know what we're talking about, sexual harassment. It's defined as uninvited and unwelcome verbal or physical behavior of a sexual nature. It can be in the workplace or other professional or social situations involving the making of unwanted sexual advances or obscene remarks. If you've ever experienced sexual harassment, would you please just remain standing? I'm gonna stand. I think we need to look around here. And I want you to stay standing for a moment because I have a question for the guys the men. If you have a mother, a wife, a sister, a friend, a significant other, a daughter, can you guys please stand? 
This isn't a female problem that's going on in our culture. This is our problem. And we as the church, we stand together so that we might, just like Jesus did, upend systems and change things so that all people, that all of us in this room are seen for who we are in Jesus Christ, are seen for our value, for our humanity, not seen first for who we are in our gender. You guys can be seated, thank you. I think it's a powerful reminder that we are in this together. Together we are in this. So I think this hashtag Me Too thing has been an amazing thing. This trending that's going on, I'll confess, my daughter Kate said, now do you understand what this means, Mom, this trending and all this stuff? I'm like, okay, I understand people though. I do understand people. But here's what I think's been amazing about it, is it's open space, right? It's open the space that, where people could share their experience of sexual assault and harassment. I think it's blown a big hole in this culture of silence around sexual assault, and more so I think it's opened a dialogue around harassment, objectification, and degradation of women. It's opened the conversation on a power imbalance that still goes on all around us in the culture that we're part of. I think what's more amazing than the trending thing that Kate tried to explain to me was that it's become a movement. And here's what I think is important for us as the church. I really hope that there's no one out here saying, why are we talking about this in church? I hope we're all saying, why haven't we talked about this in church? We, we stood and saw that we are all impacted by this. And we need to be talking about this in church. And I think more importantly, instead of jumping on this movement, the church better be leading this movement. And it's far more because I'm a woman standing up here and I feel passionately about how we have been treated. This is about Jesus. This isn't political. This is far more than what's going on in the culture. This is about taking a look at the God that we follow and the example that he gave us and how far the church has fallen from that. We, the church, should be leading this movement. And sadly, I think the church has been silent. Sadly, I think women haven't had a voice in the church. It's been spotty at best. And unlike Little League Baseball of the 1970s, or what's going on in the culture, or misinterpreted scripture, a life centered in Jesus transcends gender. And that's the truth. We're the church, we follow Jesus, and we're called to follow Jesus in relationship to what's going on in the present to what's going on in front of us today. But thinking about this hashtag, Me Too, it reminds me of the story of the Samaritan woman in John 4. We're gonna start at verse seven. You guys can follow along up here and you could grab your Bibles as well. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. 
The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. And he told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you said, what you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. I'm going to pause right there in the story just for a moment. Because part of the reason I was thinking about this text around all the hashtag me too stuff is that this is a text, and for those of you who are familiar with the story, and I will say for me too, if you would have said, remember the Samaritan woman at the, wall, at the well? What comes to your mind? So often this passage has been preached on Look at this woman who's been married five times and she's such a terrible sinner, a five-time loser. Oh my gosh. And she meets Jesus at the well and he still talks to her despite her sin and, and he forgives her. That's not what this text is saying. She's this notorious sinner. It, it doesn't say that in here. The filter that we've looked at this text through has been through a male lens because guess what? Women in this day didn't have the power to leave their husband. The only way that she could have had five husbands was that she was discarded, that she, one of her husbands had died, that she'd been abandoned. So unlike Jesus in this story, we haven't been seeing her. She's a victim. For a lot of years, we've read this story as, as though she's a sinner rather than a victim. And it says far more about who we are than it does who she is. Jesus saw it all. Not all the sin she had done, but all both done and what had been done to her. He saw who she was. And that's a powerful, powerful part of this story. But as we go on, I just wanted to backtrack a little bit and just say that Jesus is 
cutting through Samaria. He stops at a town, middle of the day. He's at a well. He meets this woman, and this, account, this encounter right off the bat crosses all boundaries because as you could see even in the text, Samaritans and Jews, they didn't mix. They didn't talk. And as part of this culture, a male would have never addressed a female let alone get into a conversation about the living water. And the first part of this text, that's exactly what Jesus does. He talks about the living water. And as wary as she was, she asked him for the water, realizing that although she wasn't certain, this was no ordinary water. Not quite understanding why it wasn't, she still asked for it. And as soon as the woman asked for the living water, the conversation turns her life around. And as soon as she asks, Jesus tells her everything about herself. And it's then, being seen by Jesus, that she thinks, oh, this is a prophet. Let's go back to the passage. In the middle of that passage, from 20 to 24, they engage in a theological conversation about worship, worship and truth and spirit, and it leads the woman to say this, verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. That's the first time he declares in the book of John who he is. And he does it to this woman. Verse 27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? And then leaving her jar of water, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of town and made their way toward him. What is life-changing for this woman, according to her, is that she had been entirely known by Jesus. And being known had enabled her to know him. And that's what transformed her life. And that's what makes that, this a story about being seen and about beginning to see who Jesus was and about being given the gift of truth that led to this living water that he talked about in the beginning of the passage. But here's the beauty of this, is that in a time when a man wouldn't talk to a woman, let alone a rabbi, he engages her in conversation, he sees her, he hears her, he knows her. And when he does that, he reveals himself to her and somewhere deep in her soul, even though she's still questioning it, she runs back. She shares this truth that Jesus, this man that she met, 
saw her and knew who she was. And through that encounter, all of her neighbors come back to see this man. She was a witness, a witness to Jesus during a time when women were, in, were viewed as inferior to man, men. And during that time, Jesus' attitude toward women was revolutionary. Through his words and his actions and his relationships, he showed high regard for women. His references to women were out of the ordinary. He put them on equal level to men. He gave them the same blessings. He healed them. He talked about them in the parables. He further established their equality in his te teachings about women. And his teachings on marriage spoke to the equal roles and rights and responsibilities of both men and women. And this is what I loved about Jesus as I was studying this past week. He had this high regard for their intellectual capacity. We saw that in this last pas passage. He violated the practice of the day by conversing with women. It was a deliberate and purposeful statement. He had high regard for the opposite gender. And he did establish equality through his own relationships with women in a time that it was unheard of. And in that same time, Jesus welcomed women to minister alongside him and to be students of his teachings. Jesus' radical view of women changed the early church because the early church held women in roles of leadership and responsibility and teaching and discipleship. And we see that throughout. I mean, we could do a whole year study on how that happened, and you see it in the way in the epistles from Paul. And two of those examples I think about are when he commends Phoebe, one of the deacons of the church, and asks people to welcome her. And then again, he talks about in Romans, um, he says this, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles. And they were in Christ before I was. And Junia was a female. It's hard to believe that somewhere over the years we lost a lot of that. Because we think about where the church is today. How is it that we've been part of the silencing of women's voices, not making room, not valuing equally the voice and the presence of females in the church? And I have to be honest that it's stunning to me that in light of Jesus and in light of the early church, that we could actually have churches in our community that are alive and thriving and growing and they don't allow females to speak because they picked a few verses out of context and, and said women should not teach men. How can that be? But it goes on. The church has been and continues to be 
a system that houses faith-based sexism. And there's absolutely no arguing that historically women's voices have been excluded from the church, from church leadership, from the pulpit. And when we ask the question about why we don't talk about gender equality or sexual assault and harassment, although it's all over the Old Testament if we want to look at that, I would suggest that because we don't have that many female pastors and female, female pastors are far more likely to talk about those things. So this is a hard conversation and I was telling Matt earlier this week that the more I think about it, the more I realize how personal this is for me and although often in my own life and in the church now I've been in more progressive churches, it's far more subtle but it's just as painful because when I'm in those situations, it's this realization that no matter what my experience or talent or giftedness is, that being a female makes things different. And I think some of Matt and my journey together over the last few years, um, we've walked that together. And I'll tell you, we've been in meetings together and walk out and I'll say, did you notice that the guy we were meeting with only directed the conversation to you? Or we'll be in big planning meetings and I'm often the only female and I might suggest something and everyone will go, oh yeah. And then 10 minutes later, one of the men will say the exact same thing and everyone goes, that is a fantastic idea. And I'm going, didn't I just like say that about 10 minutes ago? But that is the truth and I, and I have, um, preached, a officiated a funeral, and have had another pastor say to me, as I'm dressed in my black dress right above the knee, yeah, your message was good, but you were distracting because you looked a little too hot. And although I stood next to the pastor who was 15 years younger than me, and this was not Matt because he's younger than that, um, in, his, in his skinny uh, khakis and his fitted shirt, no one would ever think to comment on what he had on. I've had people say, you looked a little too cute up there, and it was distracting. I've had conversations where I've had to carefully and thoughtfully confront a situation in which I have felt bullied, in which I um, was wronged, and in those situations I've had responses like, oh, I'm sorry if it hurt your feelings. Although I uh, said what I had to say without emotion and with calmness and thoughtfulness. I've been in situations where the spirit has been, you should be grateful for all the opportunities you've had. And I am so grateful for the, all the opportunities I've had. And I'm assuming Matt is too. But the important thing here isn't that I should be thoughtful in the way I dress when I'm up in the pulpit. I believe we all should be their sacred spaces. The point is that I shouldn't be thoughtful when I have a conversation with anybody. The point is, is that the standard held for me is different than the standard that's held for Matt. And it isn't right. And as a church, we need to be paying attention to that because when we silence people, 
And when we as females try to tell our stories and we're told when we tell those stories too loud, we're going to cut you off or you're not going to get that job promotion or we're going to cut your hours or we're not going to have you up front as much because we've all been in the conversations where we've heard them say about the female who speaks too loudly that she's whiny or she's something else that I won't say here or that she's high maintenance over and over and over again. We've worked alongside men that when they've said those things, they've been, oh yeah, right, he's strong, he's aggressive, he's assertive, that's good. Doesn't look so good on a woman, though. And our God created us to lean into who he created us to be. And whatever that looks like, and that who we as a church should be upholding each other in all of this. Identity and calling. That's what God has given us, the church. And we must recover that practice no matter who we are, what our gender, sexual orientation, our color, all these things. The kingdom of God is intimate, but never small. That's what drew the people to Jesus. And Jesus' response was two things, follow me. That's the primary call of God that creates and defines the church. And when we bear authentic witness to that, we demonstrate Jesus. And so we better not be on the back end of that movement. We better be on the front end of the movement. Because often we are too afraid. And we're too afraid to speak out loud. But we have to be a church that actually lives the call out or this doesn't mean anything. So whatever our context is, our work, our relationships, the thing that we're to be about is following Jesus. We have to challenge the status quo, and I think this is a pivotal moment in the life of our church in so many ways. And it's time to listen and to see one another and hear from one another and to stand with each other and to stand up for one another. And maybe it's time that we look inward so that outward we can look more like Jesus. And maybe that means that we examine our thoughts and our behavior and our attitudes around the other gender. And we ask ourselves those hard, honest questions. And maybe some of those questions are, do I see gender before I see capability and intelligence? Am I silent when I'm sitting around with my buddies and someone walks in and there's something lewd or crude or a bad joke that's made about a woman? Because that's not a little thing. It perpetuates this whole gender inequality. It perpetuates the, the, the degradation of women. We have to stand up and speak up. Because disparaging comments, bad jokes, can't be part of who we are as the people of God. You know, I think I started sort of with things have changed. I think they've changed this way, but not this way. And I wanted to show you this picture. Patty, can you put that up of Kate? We'll get there. Our technology is so awesome. It's crazy. Just like this taped to the side of my head so it doesn't fall off. Oh, we had this, I'll tell the story quick. My daughter Kate, you know, my girls uh, tended to be more sporty. That was their passion. 
played soccer and all sorts of stuff. My daughter Kate is the only one of our kids who played hockey. Annie LB, you know the power in that. And uh, the first time I watched Kate in uniform, she was in middle school, and the first time she was with the group of girls that, you know how you jump over the, what do you call those, honey? Boards. I didn't grow up with hockey, but I love watching it. I started to cry because what I saw was empowered and strong women, and I was so excited that my girls have the opportunity to do things that I never had a chance to do. I would have loved playing hockey. And every time I watched that girl get on the ice and you know, be scrappy and slam into the boards, until the time we had to take her to the hospital, I <laughs> loved it. It was awesome. But things are changing. And I do want to say that hope has the last word because we can stand up and we can hold tightly to the Jesus we know from Scripture and we can remember that he was a revolutionary and that means we have to be a revolutionary and that we can stand together and we can be radically different and we can, from the inside out, change the way we live and we can change this world. And the question has to be, what is our response going to be? We are all created in the image of our triune God, where there's this relationship of love and equality that honors our uniqueness, but also holds us together in our oneness. That's the beauty about getting to be the church together. I'm going to pray, and Matt's going to come up for words of institution. Holy and gracious God, we thank you, God, that you were a God that was revolutionary, that you came into a culture and turned it upside down. And you gave voice to the voiceless, and you saw the person inside every being. And God, that's the same life you call us to, is to see your image in each other to bring out the giftedness and the talents and to use it for your good. That's hard work. Give us the courage to stand up and stand with one another. We love you, Jesus, and we pray all this in your name. Amen.